Church, if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3 this morning. And while you're doing that, I would like to um, address something um, that we know has gone on this week. Uh, many of you know that one of our community servants, police officer, lost his life uh, this week, Joshua Moyers. Um, serving and protecting, um, and we certainly want to, as a church, send our condolences out to his family and pray for that family particularly. We trust in the God of justice that justice will be served um, ultimately, and, um, and we're resting in those wonderful promises. And As you know, we've got three police officers uh, who are members of this church as well, and so just an added reminder to continue to pray for the protection of those who serve our community so faithfully. And well, and so uh, while we, after we read our scripture, we're going to pray and we're going to include a prayer for the Moyers family as they walk through this very difficult loss um, as well. So, would you stand for the honor of reading God's word with me? Um, this is a very intriguing text. I've, I've written this a couple months ago. I've been very really excited to get here um, because it's just something that we don't hear preached often yet needs to be said. Chapter three, verses one through five. The precious and errant infallible word of God says this. Now, there was a long war, war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Hahinahem, the Jezreelitess. His second, Kiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom the son of Makah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethereum, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we have gathered here this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the expressed purpose to be addressed by your word. To be addressed by your Son, our King, as his Spirit works here among us, bringing us to a greater knowledge of you. Father, we pray towards that end now. Would you grant us grace that we might know you more, and in knowing you more, that we might love you more. Father, we do pray for this, the Moyers family now. Lord, would you give them peace and comfort, would this be an opportunity for the community to show them uh, the gospel love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we hate death. It's a reminder things are not as they are supposed to be. And yet, Father, we trust in the God of justice to bring justice. Pray for the protection of our police officers and firemen and community helpers, Lord, that you would encourage them during this time, help them see your grace. And Lord, we thank you. Um, Father, for government institutions that uh, reward the righteous and punish the evildoer. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, so let's go ahead and give a recap of where we've been in 2 Samuel. What have we seen up to this point in the first two chapters? Well, we've seen the report of Saul's death, which occurred at the end of 1 Samuel. We've seen David's response to that report, both to the one that carried the news and his lament of Saul's death. We've seen the return from exile of David from the land of the Philistines to the land of Israel, specifically to Hebron, as we mentioned the significance there. 
Last week, we saw that David acted righteously as he offered to Jabesh Gilead an invitation to peace. But Abner acted sinfully uh, and called Israel over across the Jordan to the east. He relocates the capital there under the kingship of Ishbosheth to the place of Mahanaim, otherwise translated as two camps. That was followed by battle. First demonstrated on the 12 on 12, fighting for entertainment and the death of all 24. And then the battle for reals at the end uh, of the chapter there, which resulted in 360 of Abner's men slain that day, while only 19 plus Asahel from the people of or company of Joab, from the servants of David. And, and that ending is what we find brought up here at the beginning of our passage this morning. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. But as we pick up these first five chapters in chapter 3, we see, and here's the main idea for this morning's message, we see that David grows stronger and stronger precisely because God doesn't change. That's really the idea here. It may be difficult to kind of see that in what we just read. How do we get that? But I want to show you this. David grows stronger and stronger precisely because God doesn't change. We're going to look at this in three specific turns. And the first one is this. David's ascent is accompanied by sin. David's ascent is accompanied by sin. Look at our passage again. And we're actually going to work our way back from the end of the passage to the beginning. Verses 2 through 5 tells us that David's ascent is accompanied by his sin. David is receiving the kingdom of God. Remember, Saul was the king that the people of Israel wanted. This takes us all the way back to the beginning of 1 Samuel, where they rejected Yahweh, their God, from being their king, all the way back in 1 Samuel 8, and they requested a king like the king of the nations. So Saul's the king they asked for. David, however, is the king of God's own choosing. David is the man after God's own heart. And so from chapter 6 onward, we're reading about the ascent of David and the descent of Saul. The Lord is with David and not with Saul. And because of this, this inevitable climax and conclusion comes at the end of 1 Samuel. Saul receives his due penalty for rejecting the Lord as the true king of Israel. David, on the other hand, is receiving a kingdom, is receiving a kingdom as he returns from exile and he is anointed the king over Judah. Now, for those who are familiar with the Bible or have been attending our Wednesday night Grow You classes, David's rise and return to Israel should set you on the edge of your seat because David is of the tribe of Judah. That may not mean anything to you, but, but since the days of Jacob, as you know the word, the people of God have been awaiting a leader to arise from the tribe of Judah. And here it is in David. But David's rise to power is also accompanied by his fall into sin. And I would argue this morning that right here we begin to see that David has already begun to stray from the path of righteousness. Like Solomon after him, David's fall, it doesn't show up out of the scene out of nowhere. David is in grave danger long before we get to the sin of Bathsheba in chapter 11. Now, now some of you might be tempted to say, well, well wait a minute. 
You just said God is with David. David's having great success in the kingdom. The kingdom is being established. And, and yeah, that, that's all true. But what we're prone to miss here is that even as the author records God's blessing upon David's reign, he's foreshadowing David's fall and descent. This is communicated in our passage through the record of David's sons. I don't know if you noticed, but the text says that David has six different sons from six different women. He's got six baby mamas, right? Does the author expect us to make a moral judgment about this? Yes, he does. Listen, this is not amoral. This is either right, true, good, and beautiful, or it's not. So which is it? How do we know? What should the judgment be? I'll give you the answer. David should not have six wives. He shouldn't. How do we know? Because of the word of God. That's how we know. In fact, Genesis 2 institutes marriage for us. It institutes marriage between one man and one woman. And that's the normative. Okay? Hear that. Genesis 2 tells us, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Singular. Not wives. Be joined in that context, it speaks to the covenant bond that is established between one man and one woman, making the two one until death. Genesis 4 records the emergence of polygamy in the context of the line of Cain, which, by the way, again, Wednesday night, I would argue, is the seed of the serpent. The man Lamech in the, the line of Cain who takes two wives is clearly a haughty and violent man. Now, no moral judgment is given to us in the narrative and that context either. And yet, we are clearly to see that this is not good. The discerning reader would infer that this is not something that is to be a normal practice among God's people. But I know what your question is. Pastor Cody, we see this all throughout Genesis. I mean, what about the patriarchs? Okay, let's go there. What about the patriarchs? Well, Abram taking his concubine, Hagar, in order to secure the promise of God was clearly not good. This too seems to point toward polygamy as a result of the fall and not normative. Not the revealed will of God. Jacob ends up with two wives and two concubines, not through a conscious obedience to the word of God, but through the combination of the deceit of his father-in-law and the rivalry of his sister wives. And in case you're still wondering about it, finally, there is an explicit prohibition for the king of Israel not to acquire many wives. In the law, when it's talking about the future king of Israel foreshadowing what is to come, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, it says this, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So surely the author of 2 Samuel 3 expects the reader to be familiar with the law of God. And so as we see that David went from two wives, which isn't good, to six wives, which is worse, we should be troubled. This is out of step for a man after God's own heart. This is how the king of the nations operate. 
And if you think this judgment is too simplistic or we're guilty of reading into the text beyond the intention of the author, let me just tell you, 2 Samuel, it actually consists of four literary units and they all end with a list of names. The first one is right here in our passage where it ends with a list of the six sons born to David at Hebron. Uh, the next section is at the end of chapter 5, where 11 more sons are born to David in Jerusalem. There, in chapter 5, verse 13, we read this, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. See, see what I'm pointing out here is explicitly stated there. In the nearer context, we might add, we have David, a man with six wives, who next week will begin to negotiate for another. The daughter of Saul, Michal. In fact, we'll look at that in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. We'll read a little bit of that here. David negotiates for her, but this is a heartbreaking story because in order to get her back, she has to be taken away from her husband. And so her husband follows her. She's being taken to David and he's weeping the entire way. Chapter 15 says, And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Why in the world does David need another wife? See, see, there's a foreshadowing here of the type of man that though he has all sorts of sheep would look and take the sheep from a man who only has one. From a man who loves it dearly. That's just the type of heart that's at work in the actions of David in chapter 3. That's just the nearer context, right? But the final clue actually comes in the passage itself. One of David's wives, Makah, is a foreigner. Most likely the result of an alliance with the king of Geshur, which was a city in Syria. Interestingly enough, you know which son is born to Makah? Absalom. Who, if you know the story, we will later read, the, will lead the rebellion against his father David. See, listen, this is how historical narrative works. Remember, this is the genre here. This is how it works. It's not going to come out and tell you exactly what is amoral or immoral and what is moral. But there's all these subtle clues that are, are just clear. It doesn't jump off the page at you and say, trouble, trouble, red flag, warning. And yet they're all over the place. This is not good. David is ascending to the throne. He's growing stronger and stronger, and yet there's something here that just doesn't sit right. So there are two obvious lessons here. One's a moral lesson, one's a practical lesson. Let's start with the practical. Practical lesson, I need you to hear this. This is very important for how you interpret the word. The practical lesson is the Old Testament historical narrative is not normative. What do I mean by that? The Old Testament historical narrative is not normative. What I mean by that is it's descriptive. It, it describes how the people of God lived under the Old Covenant. It doesn't prescribe how we are to live. So for instance, if your father-in-law, before he's your father-in-law, deceives you into marrying one of his daughters, you don't get to go to Genesis and say, well, that happened to Jacob, I'll take the other one too. No, it's not normative. 
It doesn't prescribe what you are to do. It describes what happened. The reader is drawn in to take up the word of God and consider what it is that God thinks about that. Is this true, right, good, and beautiful? We have to use all of God's revelation in the scripture to arrive at a true moral judgment and discern what truths are being communicated. So we can take those truths and then apply them to our context. So that's the first lesson. It's practical. The second lesson, the moral lesson is pretty simple. David's wrong for having six sons by six different women. That, that's, that's a moral lesson here. That, that's wrong. David is wrong for having six sons by six different women. Why? Because God's intention for marriage has never changed. Despite what the culture says, God's intention for marriage has never changed. It has always been the union of one man with one woman for procreation, for companionship, the advancement of society and human flourishing. Always and everywhere you won't find it. Well, you can find it, but it won't be in the Bible. The Bible knows no other arrangement which qualifies as good, true, and beautiful, period. Therefore, when we read the list of six sons by six wives, we're meant to think, uh-oh, what's our boy David doing? Uh, David, I don't know if you know this, two wives was a bad idea, but to add four more, not good. What we see is David receiving the kingdom of God, get this, and straying from the path of righteousness at the same time. David's political ascent is a moral descent as well. The first unit ends with a hint that David is already stumbling. It's almost like you're watching him run a race. And right here we get the first step that he just steps on his shoestrings, right? And so he's starting to stumble. We'll get another event where he starts to go like this. And another event where he's falling even more. And then he'll fall flat on his face in chapter 11. That, that's what we're seeing here. The point is, is that David's political ascent is at also the same time his moral descent. And so let's go ahead and apply that before we move to the second point. See, as we see David stumble here, not just fall, David wasn't walking in righteousness, by the way, and then all of a sudden found himself up on a roof looking at a woman bathing couldn't control himself. That's not what happened to David. If that's your picture of what happened to David, you're wrong. You know what happened to David? He stopped guarding his heart long before 2 Samuel chapter 11. So the application for us is clear. Friends, church family, saints, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Young people, students hearing me, guard your heart. If that's what God's word says, what do you do? You guard your heart. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. I would argue that it is an indisputable fact that few fall just like that into great and grievous sin. Instead, it's like trying to navigate from point A to B with a compass, but you're only a degree off. It doesn't matter very much in 100 yards, but it matters a whole lot with 100 miles. So we begin to think, you know what, I can listen to that. I can consume that. It's not going to hurt me. I've been walking with the Lord so long, that stuff no longer impacts me the way you think it does. I've been reading my Bible a long time. I know it pretty well at this point. Do I really need to read it every single day? 
Do I really need to gather with God's people? I mean, I've been doing this thing a long time. I think me and the Lord have it figured out. I'm not sure, so sure I need all of y'all anymore. Listen, by the time you reach that point, you've already been a degree or two off for way too long. Friends, guard your heart. Guard it. So we see in our passage that David's ascent is accompanied by sin. But I also want to show you something else. That David's ascent is accomplished by God. Even in the midst of it being accompanied by sin, David's ascent is accomplished by God. The text tells us that David grew stronger and stronger. And now we back up just a little bit and we remind ourselves that God has delivered David thus far. In fact, Psalm 18, you can go ahead and write this down. It's written by David and just the heading alone says this, on the day that the Lord delivered him, David, from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Psalm 18, even just the heading is sufficient to make my point. It is the Lord that delivered him. David's military and political success is because David's God was fulfilling his word. So hear me, yes, David is growing stronger and stronger, and yet David is straying more and more, and that, that's actually the lesson that we are to learn here. We're, we're to learn that David's God is faithful. See, see, the reason I've labored to help us see the foreshadowing of David's downfall is because it should help us better see the reason for David's success. We can't attribute David's success to David. I mean, if David is straying, then it becomes impossible for us to say David's growing stronger and stronger because David's righteous, walking in obedience. It will not work for us to say that the difference between David and Saul was David was perfectly obedient and Saul was not. And yes, I'll admit that this is implicit. David grew stronger and stronger, and there's no mention specifically of the Lord here in the text. But, but let's go back to that, that other heading, that end of that literary unit in chapter 5, verse 12, because it comes, becomes explicit there. Chapter 5, verse 12 says, So David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Likewise, at the end of the next literary unit in chapter 8, it's explicit. It says, So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. How, let's ask this question. How is it that David can be faithless and successful at the same time? How is it that David can be stumbling and growing stronger? How can David be failing and succeeding? Because God is faithful to his word. That's it. I want you to think carefully about the difference between Saul and David. Is it really that one was just this heinous sinner and the other was righteous? Is that the story? No. Here's the story. Saul's kingship was based on the will and word of man. Saul was an answer to the request of man. It was man's will which brought forth the kingdom of Saul. What about the kingdom of David? What was it grounded on? The will and word of God. <laughs> See, Saul's kingship was governed by the basic principle of the old covenant. Obey and live. And he, just like everyone else, could not obey and therefore died. What about David's kingship? David's kingship was governed by promise. 
Saul was faithless. He was swept away just as God had warned. David was faithless and being established as king over Israel just as God has promised. I mean, look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 again. When we read, but David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker, we're supposed to read that in light of 1 Samuel 13, 15, 16, 23, 24, 25, and 26. All of those places where we see the prophet speak the promise that God has called for himself one after his own heart. That God's word's active in bringing forth the kingdom that could not be destroyed. Over and over again, the Lord spoke this through his prophet. David would be king in Israel. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That was inevitable. Why? Because God had chosen the right and faithful guy? In this context, is that why? No. God's word makes it clear that that is not the case. Why is it inevitable? Because God has spoken. He's not a man that he should change his mind. It is grounded in the very character and nature of God. So friends, again, for the billionth time during this series, let me tell you, his word is certain. Church, listen to me. David's God is our God. God has generously revealed his kind, merciful, just, loving, and righteous character to us. We read in the book of Exodus, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is our God. Just, holy, righteous, pure, good, and sovereign. Oh, but please this morning, consider his mercies new. How gracious, how slow to anger, how abounding in steadfast love. Friends, what does that mean to you? Here's the beauty of this text is that salvation belongs to this God. From beginning to end, he is the one who is reconciling the world to himself. Why would you reject such a God? David's ascent is accompanied by sin. David's ascent is accomplished by his God. But I want you to see one more thing. David's ascent is also accompanied by time. Now we go back to the very beginning of the text. David's ascent is also accompanied by time. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Friends, if you're not familiar with your Bible, you may not know this. But did you know that you and I are in a war? We are. We are in a war. God's word is clear on this. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We have an adversary who according to 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But, but we're not just in a war of spiritual forces of evil. 
We're in a war waged against ideas, arguments, and opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. Hear this text from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, and just apply this to what's going on every day in our lives. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. See, the war isn't just out there, friends. The war is also in us. As God's word says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, for the flesh lust against the spirit, wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. There is war inside and out. And all of this is simply to confirm what most of us already know. We are at war. And hear me, saints, it is a long and difficult war. It's a war that we started when we rebelled against a good and gracious benevolent God in the Garden of Adam. There has been war ever since. The Old Testament records this war largely in physical terms. The spiritual forces, though seldom mentioned in the Old Testament, though, are nonetheless present over this present darkness. As Brother Corey read, the nations rage against the Lord and is anointed with darkened minds full of arguments and opinions. We can speak of it in spiritual terms. Its reality is no less present in the Old Testament than it is in the New See, the war wasn't even just out there in the nations in regards to Israel, was it? The evidence of the war is everywhere in the Old Testament. Every page records the corruption of the flesh and its default posture of enmity towards God. We, we addressed explicitly the Old Testament. Actually, it, it has language for this for us. Maybe you've heard this before. Uncircumcised heart or being stiff-necked. You heard that language before? That's the language the Old Testament has for this. These are two metaphors often employed. Both of these refer to the same spiritual reality. It's war against the Spirit of God. And in our passage, we are reminded, hear me, this is what we see here in this passage. We're reminded that rescued sinners have not yet been completely delivered from the war. Amen. We can all relate to David. We should, by the way, all relate to David. It's very easy for us to count the number of our wives and look down on him and say, how dare he? What an awful person. He doesn't deserve God's covenant faithfulness like me. But no, we should all be able to relate to David. And we really shouldn't even have to try all that hard. Answer me this. Does David have a circumcised heart or uncircumcised? Is David stiff-necked? If you think that that's the case, show me the passage that leads you to believe that. Are you going to take me to a sin? Then you miss the point. David's heart is circumcised. David does not have a stiff neck. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel 16 that the Spirit of God came upon David and never departed. David is the man after God's own heart, the great king of Israel, who walked in the ways of the Lord. So testifies the scriptures. Every king is compared to David. But David's circumcised heart and loosened neck did not remove him from the war. It did not ensure that he would win every battle. In fact, we know he didn't. We've seen this clearly demonstrated this morning. And let me ask you, for, I mean... 
Listen, have you read church history? Anybody here a big fan of church history? Just one of you, that's okay. <laughs> Many of us do, I believe. And if you do, you, you might be encouraged, but can I be honest with you? I, I find it, frankly, pretty depressing. You want to know why? Because if you're looking for the glorious, ideal church, faithful and true, imitating Christ, reflecting his glorious light in the world, go ahead and search church history all you want, and you will not find an age when the church is not struggling with faithlessness. You won't. Now, this is not to disparage the brothers and sisters who've gone before us, because do you think we're doing better? <laughs> See, my aim here is simply to help us be more biblical about who we are and where we are. There have been none that have gone before us who have been perfectly faithful outside of Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, I'm not sure we do ourselves any favors when we depict the saints of old like that. When we depict them without warts. Go ahead, pick your man of God. You know what you'll find? real struggles and real sin. So what's the point? The point is to understand who we are and where we are. I want you to relate to David's slow drift so that you might avoid it and to whatever extent you don't, you look to David's God who is nonetheless perfectly faithful in the midst of your faithlessness. See, you and I, we've got a lot in common with David if you're a believer here this morning. We, like David, were chosen by God and called by his grace. We all have had the Spirit of God given to us, never taken away. We are all living in a war zone. Like David, you and I are often faithless. We know what God's word says, but we ignore it. We know what is right and true, but we choose to satisfy our flesh. We fail to find satisfaction in the giver of gifts. And so we reach out and take more than the giver gives. He offers us this, but we want that. He calls us to wait, but we run ahead. He commands us to trust, but we entertain and cultivate doubt. We are faithless too, beloved. But the good news is that God is faithful. Listen, war is easier when you know the God to whom the battle belongs. When you see the whole story is about a God who is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. When you come to understand that God is relentlessly undeterred by the failure of his people, our faith grows, our hope increases, and our love abounds. See, don't miss the story in its more immediate context. It is all about the God who called David according to his divine purposes for the good of his people Israel. I mean, David, in one sense, is a close-up picture of Israel too, isn't it? Israel has been unfaithful. But who is the one who is going to be recipient of the blessing that's going to come from the kingdom of David? The very people who rejected God. If God is able to do this through a man such as David, a chief of sinners, how certain is the salvation that God accomplished through a sinless son? If we're able to see it through the life of David, how much more when we get to Christ, the one who was sinless and came in the fullness of time to live the life that we refuse to live, to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf and in the end to stand in our stead, to take upon himself the curse that should have fell on our head. 
If God can unite Israel, subdue nations, and establish a kingdom of peace, typologically, yes, speaking, through a polygamist, murdering, adulterer, how much more can God reconcile all things to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of the righteous one, the author of life, the light of the world, the Lamb of God, quite apart from your help? Amen. That's the gospel. That's why it's so stinking good news. Because if I'm honest, I can relate to David. I mean, I only have one wife. She is more than enough. <laughs> but my heart is often faithless. That's an understatement. So here's what you do. Stop dwelling on your faithlessness and start meditating on the eternal, immutable, infinite faithfulness of the God who transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Listen, can I be honest? The war stinks. Doesn't it? It really does. We must fight and we will stumble. But you know what? We will also win. <laughs> we will. Do you know that? It's certain. Why? Because of your faithfulness? Because of our faithfulness? Because of my faithfulness? No. Because of the faithfulness of our God and His Son. We win because the saying is trustworthy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So says the word of God and so we believe. 2 Timothy 2.13 We win because God is faithful. He saves sinners and we are not done until we all arrive home. The war is long. But saints, the kingdom of God is worth waiting for. The kingdom that will never be shaken is coming. If you've been denying Jesus Christ by refusing to trust him alone for your salvation, I command you in the name of Jesus to repent and trust him. God is more faithful than you could ever possibly imagine. His mercy is more. Whatever you think you have done, it cannot outdo what he has done in Christ Jesus for the salvation of his people. It can't. Ask God to forgive you based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone and know that the Father gladly hears and answers the prayers of sinners. Know that in Christ you have been freed from the guilt and power of sin so you can follow Jesus. The rest of us who are weak and faithless, we've placed our faith in Christ alone. And so saints, this morning I exhort us to remember that God is faithful. He's always been faithful and he always will be faithful. The Bible is the story of this faithful God saving sinners in spite of our faithlessness. So to conclude... David grew stronger because God doesn't change. He's faithful and he keeps his promises. Our passage reminds us of who we are. Faithless followers of a faithful God. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Gracious Father, you know, Lord, how faithless we can be. Would you remind us this morning, even as these words continue to trickle from our head to our hearts, 
of how faithful you are. Help us not to look to ourselves, but only to your Son. Help us to constantly recall how you, despite our faithlessness, throughout redemptive history, have been committed to your purpose of saving sinners. Father, will you help us to live in light of that glorious gospel? Because we are weak. We are like David. We are trusting only in your promises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.